0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Navigating the Noise, a podcast series brought to you by CHPA, the Corporate Housing Providers Association, with support from ASAP, the Association of Service Department Providers. I'm Brian David Johnson, your futurist and host for the podcast.
1: And I'm Ann Passi, the CEO of the Corporate Housing Providers Association.
0: Welcome, everybody, to Episode 10 of Navigating the Noise, where we will be looking at the future of markets, regulation, and business. This is no small subject, and and certainly in the spirit of navigating the noise, there's a lot of noise these days and a lot of concern simply by membership and other members of the industry around this, looking at issues around globalization versus nationalism, around regulation, really around where could all of these things be going. And there's certainly a lot of fear, and I think there's a lot of worry, but it's an important subject, something that we really wanted to dig into, and we're bringing a lot of really interesting guests with really interesting perspectives tonight not only focus on what's going on today, but to really get pragmatic and say, you know, what do you really need to be concerned with what's going on?
1: Thanks, Brian. Uh, this episode is going to focus on where globalization is heading and what that potential impact is on the industry. Also, where likely will the supply chain for different countries move um, and where will that impact the economies of various countries? So as we do
0: in all of our episodes, we will examine our subject from multiple angles, getting different perspectives and ideas about the subject in general, but also how it can apply specifically to the future of corporate housing and longer-term rentals. The podcast is broken into three segments. First, we look at the road ahead, where we explore futures research, looking outside of the industry to get a bigger picture. And to do this, we'll bring on a guest who's doing some interesting work who might be working in this area or who may have done some research in this area.
1: And so James Voice from ASAP and I have recruited corporate housing and service department providers and their partners, uh, global thought leaders in the industry, to bring you the realities of what's important to you and your companies.
0: And that's in our second section called What Matters. And then finally, we'll discuss pragmatic actions that you can take today to prepare for the future in our third segment, Three Things to Do. And with that, let's get started. Welcome to Section 1 of the podcast, which we call The Road Ahead. So on this episode, we're going to look at the future of markets, regulation, and business. So Marianne and I are going to start off looking at the road ahead and kind of explore their impact. Now, this is certainly a massive subject, and it's something that is important, and something that many of our listeners and many people who both Mary and I have talked to have really asked about. This that there's this shift that's going on around the world. It's a shift sometimes towards globalism, and sometimes it's a shift towards nationalism. That there are changes in markets, and there are changes in regulation and business, and they have real impact. But sometimes they're so big and so broad, and sometimes happening happening halfway around the globe that this can be really a tough one. And this could be a a tough subject. Now, I don't believe we're going to be able to solve all of this. Certainly, we're not going to see the future of all markets and all regulation and all business. But I think we can start somewhere. We can actually start to put together a framework for understanding these broad topics, for understanding globalism versus nationalism, to understand what these market shifts and regulations might have on your business. And to get us started, Marianne and I have brought a guest onto the podcast. Hey, everybody. This is the segment on Navigating the Noise where we bring in an outside expert to talk about these different futures from a broader perspective. I was able to sit down with our favorite economist, Paul Thomas, and talk about the future of markets, regulation, and business.
2: Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. So as you heard me say, Paul, so we're thinking about,
0: you know, the the future of markets and regulation and, and business and kind of at a really kind of high level as we're kind of thinking about today and then kind of moving to the future. So For you as an economist, as you kind of look at sort of what's going on today when it comes to nationalism versus globalism or people wanting to keep jobs just local or being a part of the world economy,
2: when you see that, how do, how do you think about it? Well, I think sometimes we put a label on, on our thoughts, on our philosophies, that may not be how we got there. So a lot of people um, may be very worried about what happens to their job in the U.S. and be very wary about foreign competition and start to have an inclination towards closing things down a little bit to, to try to gain some more job security themselves and other forms of security. And only later do they get labeled as being nationalist or being anti-globalist. And they may or may not actually fit that definition. When when um, I got your email suggesting that we talk about this, I went right to the internet and I started looking up globalism versus nationalism. And the two of the, the funny things that happened right away were quizzes that you can take to find out whether you're a nationalist or you're a globalist, and <laughs> and uh, it was fun. And I should confess, I um, I'm not a nationalist. I'm not a globalist. I'm an extreme uber globalist by the by by one of the tests that I took. So correspondingly, you can probably figure out some of my my uh, leanings from from that that confession. Um, to some extent, we try to make it about lifestyle, and I think that's backwards. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, just like talking about supporters of the president versus opponents of the president, we try to talk about it as lifestyle. If you know whether there's a Whole Foods near someone's in someone's precinct uh, versus a Cracker Barrel, you supposedly can predict who they how their precinct went for president and um so we talk about sort of you know if you imagine a whole foods versus cracker cracker barrel as a summary of all the things that globalists would like whole foods and nationalists would like cracker barrel, well, my sister likes both, and so I'm not so sure that they're they're that predictive, but they they have they do have to do with i think some insecurity that people have worries um if you work for a company that's either owned by foreign interests, it's a, a US branch of a foreign company, um, or perhaps highly dependent on foreign companies and things are working well, then you might get reassured that an open economy is work, works for you, it's good for you. On the other hand, if you saw your employer go under, um, And and that was at least seems to be plausible, at least in part due to foreign competition, you can imagine a person would get more protective. And uh, so, again, I don't think it's something that you're sort of born a globalist or a nationalist or that it becomes sort of like a fundamental, almost religious conversion. I think it might be much more based on what's happened recently and what your recent own experiences have been. Um I'd like to mention one thing if we if we can take the time there was a there was an article in the academic press a long time ago uh, by Mansur Olson and Richard Zackhauser. This would have been a few decades ago um, they Za I think was a, a public policy professor at Harvard and uh, Mansur Olsen was a political science professor at University of Maryland and they they wrote a Pretty well-known paper among well-known among political scientists, which has to do with internationalism and the question of who bears the burden for the international order, and what they they built a, they built a little game theory model, and what they ended up deciding is the reason the United States pays for NATO pays much much more than anyone else for the United Nations, um, it often acts like the world's policeman, is we're so big, and we have so much more interest around the world than many other countries do, that they can sort of free ride on us. Um, it, it just makes no sense for them to contribute if we're gonna pay for it. And we dare not experiment with not paying for it because we're, again, we're everywhere around the world and we could be badly hurt if the, if the international order falls apart. Now, now go forward several decades since that article was written. And we're not as big a part of the world anymore. You know, we were once regularly uh, after World War II. We were 40% of the world economy, and we we watch ourselves being um, partially eclipsed by other countries that keep growing faster than we do. And at so at a certain point, I haven't heard anyone mention this, but it's not that original of thought. At a certain point, the right attitude for a declining power, and I'll I'll sort of apologize. I don't mean that we we couldn't win in a war. What I mean as a declining power is that we, relative to other countries, they have their fingers everywhere also, especially China, but also India and many other countries. Um, and so it doesn't make sense for us to foot the bill entirely anymore um, as much as, we, as it used to. And this just sort of is like an accounting, but then you go ahead and you say, well, it's changing attitudes. It soon it becomes almost a psychological Characteristics. So I think it may be happenstance that, um, or the natural, remember the, U, the U.S. was such a big part of the world economy after World War II because large parts of the world had been, had been destroyed in a terrible war. So as, as China, now China, but before then Japan and Germany, as they recovered, we have other countries that will find it worthwhile a little bit not to be free riders, to make their own contributions, and we lose the strong argument that we should be footing the bill. And we don't talk about it that way, of course. Uh, the president talks about it as we've all been silly and we've been paying the bill and now we're not gonna be silly anymore. The Mansur Olsen and Richard Zeckhauser article would say it was in our interest to pay the bill for a while, and maybe it isn't in our interest now. And the last thing I'll say is the world probably becomes more dangerous if we don't step forward, because it doesn't make sense for us to step forward as much anymore, we're not, we're not that big a part of the world anymore, um, it, the world becomes more dangerous because it doesn't necessarily make sense for these other countries. If you have 100 countries that are all the same size, almost no one contributes almost anything. If you have 100 countries and one of them is a giant, the giant pays the bill. So the bill's it's going to be harder if this is right to get people to pay the bill in the future, and people will act as if they're more nationalists, but again, it's almost an accounting uh phenomenon
0: yeah that's a really it's a really interesting way to kind of think about it that that America's sort of economic shift in the world and how that how that would reflect let me let me ask you this paul so. You know as a part of this podcast you know it's for you know average business folks right folks who you know certainly aren't economists or futurists or they're just they're, they're business people so i wanted to find out so one of the things that you're really good at is actually putting these terms in ways so that business people can use them and think about them or think about them in a different way much like you just talked to us about globalism versus versus nationalism and you've spent the majority of your career actually working with business people around um kind of um economic so how would you how how can average people average business people kind of prepare or think about the future or is there a framework or a way of thinking that that they could kind of approach kind of this state of kind of what's going on and what's shifting because i said a lot of people do feel disempowered is there a, a, a way for them to to kind of think about how they what they might do or how they might take action
2: um, sure. Yeah, I liked that, when, that the question when you sent it to me. Um, so I immediately started thinking of all the great places we have where people can follow to the extent they want to um, what, what people are thinking about the economy and the political economy. Um, and so I would say, and I would guess that most of your uh, members um, are pretty well informed about business, especially the business that are in the geographic areas where they, they have their businesses. So I don't think it's that hard. I mean, it's keeping up with the business page, reading maybe some national or, or internationally renowned publications every now and then, like the Wall Street Journal. Or, you know, if, I, if someone told me they were only going to read a couple of things, I would say read the New York Times and read the Wall Street Journal. And I know you're not practically going to have time to read the whole paper but just sort of scan them and find interesting articles. They're both, they're both great journals, and great publications. Um, I really love the uh, webcast, uh, the podcast Planet Money. It's very funny and it, 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 it has business people and politicians and journalists and economists sort of arguing about funny things, uh, talking about big bets they've had about how the economy was going to evolve. Um, there was a great story not not too far from where Intel's headquarters are in Southern California. There was uh, sorry in uh, in Santa, San Jose, California, Santa Clara. There was a great story that uh, Planet Money picked up about um, raising minimum wage in San Jose, California, but it wasn't raised yet in Santa Clara, and the line dividing the two cities goes right through a mall. And so some of the so some of the uh, stores in the mall had to give people raises to meet the new minimum wage rules, and others did not because they were on the Santa Clara side instead of the San Jose side. There were even the pretzel stands. One pretzel stand was in was in the uh, San Jose side of the mall, and the other was in the Santa Clara, owned by the same woman who owned both pretzel stands and and had to figure out how to pay her employees. Um, and you had a really dramatic story and it was picked up by, by Planet Money and, again, very entertaining and very insightful to think about what will happen as minimum wage price increases go go on. Um, the other thing I'll mention, if you have more time, if you have a longer commute, uh, is you might want to listen to a podcast called Econ Talk, which is comes out of uh, Stanford's Hoover Institute Um Russ Roberts is the, the interviewer. And I think I've mentioned him to you before, Brian, because he's he's a fantastic interviewer. And I really admire him for that. And he he's very politically conservative, but he's very fair in his interviewing. And he'll have people talk about some of the big ideas and big controversies. So I, again, I suspect your members are doing a good job already staying informed, but these are sort of forums they may not have thought about before.
0: Yeah, they are. They are very, they're very data savvy and very savvy. But no, those are, that's really, really great kind of pragmatic advice. You, you, you heard it here, folks, um, from, from Paul Thomas. Hey, Paul, listen, you know I'm a super fan of you. I think you're now going to have more super fans um, after this podcast. But thank you so much for joining us on Navigating the Noise. We really appreciate it.
2: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Welcome, everyone, to the What Matters section of the podcast, where Marianne and I take the broad futures that we've just explored and figure out what matters to CHPA and ASAP members, as well as the broader corporate housing and longer-term rental industry. So, Marianne, as we're looking to the future of markets, regulation, and business, what kind of guests did you get for us today? Who did you, you find?
1: We have Irvin Yeo, and Irvin is the Regional General Manager for the ASCOT Limited, covering the Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia markets. So he's concurrently Vice President for Strategic Planning and also serves on the Board of Synergy Global Housing. And ASCOT operates currently in 30 countries and across 150 cities. So 30 countries, that's,
0: so Irvin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming.
3: Good morning. Hi. Happy to be here
0: and and certainly as a as a as a guest, you know this is a, a, a huge um, conversation, certainly, as we look to the future of markets uh, regulation and business but i I think as a, as a guest you 're kind of perfectly um, sort of situated to to really kind of help us navigate the noise so there 's certainly a lot going on right now when it comes to this subject and I think maybe a, a simple place to start off, Urban, is to say, um, are you feeling currently any pain or are you experiencing any gains as you kind of look at the current situation around globalism versus naturalism, sort of some of the things that are going on with markets around the globe? What, what are you experiencing?
3: Well, I think we, we definitely are gaining from globalism and uh, nationalism at the same time. Uh, so Escort was a company that started in Singapore. It's a tiny country of five million people, and uh, what made Singapore special, I suppose, was its openness to global trade. It's a it's a tiny little city. It's uh, about 400 somewhat square miles, uh, but it has always been uh, at the center of global trade along the South China Sea, along the Straits of Malacca, global trade routes. So. From the beginning, when the country was founded in 1965, it was all about being open to the world, to global trade. And that's how escot started in 1984. And from then, we started from one tiny city to basically 30 countries across uh, 150 cities. And how we benefited was basically from global travelers, from corporate travelers who who are moving around the world, who are mobile, who want to either move alone as uh, road warriors or moving with their trailing spouses or children. And we've really benefited from from basically global trade, global movement of people and resources. And right now, you know, there are some trade tensions between uh, America and China, but I wouldn't say that China actually is uh, our our single largest market. We, we started out with just one property in China. now we are I think we're, we're pushing more than a hundred properties now in across China. And one of the interesting things is that when we first started, nine, more than 90 percent of our guests staying in our properties in China were foreign. But now increasingly we are seeing a lot of local Chinese also staying in our properties and and this is a, a trend that we are also, Learning a little bit about because China is a huge country, and there's a lot more intra-country travel to complement the global travel, and this is something that you know you would know that is very mature in America, where domestic travel, domestic transfers, multi-family, corporate travel is such a huge thing, and and we're seeing this in China, and and while yes there may be some trade tensions and there's a, a sense of nationalism, I think ultimately what matters to corporates and com- and companies is that they will go where the market is. And and if their market domestically is small, they'll be going someplace else uh, to, to strive. And, and these opportunities, these create opportunities for extended-stay corporate housing providers because they need to provide housing for these guys. Um if you if you were to come to Singapore, you would be able to stay because everyone speaks English, and in a in in basically in extended stay properties in the in the branded property or somewhere else. But if you were going to go to, to as part of your uh, company's expansion into less lesser known markets, Middle East, Africa, even China, you would be very much looking at a a reputable extended stay provider that. That can give you the peace of mind uh, to to have a safe, comfortable place to stay while you you spend your day doing your work. So definitely, I think we we are seeing more gains than pains.
0: Yeah, that's really it's really interesting, Irvin, that uh, that you would say that. It kind of sounds like it's. It really it depends upon the market. It depends upon the size of the market. So as you say, it's you're experiencing gains from both. So if it's uh, if it's globalism, it means that it's, it's people traveling around the globe, as you said, being road warriors or moving around the globe. But if the if the market is big enough, in a way, mm-hmm. you could profit from nationalism as well, because you have more people. If you have a it's sort of closing down and sort of moving away from globalism, that if the market's big enough, they can travel sort of. Like you said, in, intra-country travel, and that's a. I think yep. that, that's a that's a really interesting perspective.
1: And it's a little bit different than what we what I've been hearing from our smaller member companies. They've been used to the domestic travel um, within North America, especially, and now that uh, they have there's a global economy they've got clients that they've been used to serving in that capacity now that want that need to be elsewhere in the world and so they are expanding their networks um, and their partnerships across the globe to be able to be able to service them um, wherever they happen to travel either individually or with their families so kind of the reverse of what um, Irvin is seeing is what uh, is the trend that some of our smaller member companies have been seeing here.
0: Yeah, Irvin, would you would you agree with that? That you think that really the the size of your organization allows you to get the gains from both globalism and nationalism. Where if you maybe have a smaller provider, that's really has to focus on their kind of specific market. Would you agree?
3: Yes, I think so. Well, that that's one of the main reasons why Ascot decided to take a global presence. In its early days, we we wanted to just stay around Southeast Asia, and then later on. You no, know, we realized that our corp- our corporate clients, our companies, were telling us, "Hey, it's great that you have property in Singapore, but I need to be mm-hmm. in Malaysia. I need to be in China. I need to be not just in Beijing, Shanghai. I need to be in this second tier, third tier city. Why don't you have a property there?" So what we've done is to expand according to basically the needs of our clients who who have global needs. Uh, some of them, sure, they, they just want to be in certain cities, but many of them want to go uh, into other other cities, going further afield. Um, basically, after you've, you've uh, I, w- I don't want to say exhausted, but if you, you've you already tapped the opportunities in the main cities, you want to be looking at other places around uh, the country. So you're going a little bit further afield, and we want to be there to, Provide a good housing solution for our clients and the peace of mind that comes with having the branded uh, good quality property So that's how we've also looked at our expansion Uh, when we are in countries. We are not just in the capital cities We are also going further afield uh, to provide that option for our our clients as well.
0: So yeah, really it really was your 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 clients and the mm-hmm. your client needs kind of pushing you to to make that. So let me let's ca- let's carry that on a little bit further, Irvin, is to mm-hmm. say so as you start to look out to the future, you know, how are you, how is your company preparing for the future, especially as we think about the kind of this future of markets and regulation and business, the this kind of world of globalism versus nationalism, what how are how are you preparing for the future?
3: Well, we're preparing for the future by by well, first, we want to be in locations that our clients want to be in. I think we've covered this a little bit earlier. We want to be a little bit ahead of the curve uh, because in property development, there there is a long gestation cycle. It takes a couple of years to get a building up. right? Some client comes to us and tells us, hey, I need to be in Ghana. We're not going to have a property up tomorrow. So we, we, what we're trying to do is to get a sense of the corporate travel of, about the business and this is where uh, being an extended stay property, having guest service officers, hosts on property, talking to clients. And uh, this gives us a good bellwether for for where the movement is so that we can get ahead of the curve, get a property there so that when, when the demand comes, um, we are in good position. But beyond that, beyond just physically being in the places where people want to go, we need to make sure we have the product that serves what people want. And while one of the reasons why the Carter uh, invested in the Synergy Global Housing, which is you know very familiar to, to all the listeners here who, who are part of CHPA, is that we think that they represent very much the travelers of the future. Um when we started in 1984, we were we were serving corporate travelers, and these are guys in business suits carrying briefcases, and they are going to capital cities. In fact, they are coming with their their spouses, their children, and they would be staying for years at a time. But now, with the advent of well, first the the major trend was uh, low cost air travel, and with low cost air travel came. The trend of people doing the the monday to thursday in in the city and then weekends back home so their their needs shifted a little bit from long-term housing to more uh, a weekday workday type um, housing and the other major trend that we are seeing is that is the change in tomorrow's business travelers and these are guys from who's doing the the, the major hiring who's hiring out of colleges who is expanding globally these are a lot of the technology-type companies, and their corporate travelers are not wearing suits. They're not carrying briefcases. They're in T-shirts. They're in jeans. They're carrying sling bags. And and their demands for corporate housing are very much different. So what we are looking at is to make sure that while we have the location where we have the product, we're also making sure that we have the right product that appeals to these guys who who now have uh, have work and play kind of kind of smushed up a little bit right i'll give you just a quick couple of examples one is that our our corporate travelers used to go to work at 95 and now they're working very flexible hours they could be telecommuting they could be going at 11 they could go, be going at 12 so the property needs to be conducive for them to work on property not just like home and the second trend that we are seeing is that while the office used to be just cubicles and it's very clearly when you walk into the office, you know it's in the office. Today you look at the offices that are coming up, the co-working spaces, the we work spaces, even the traditional offices are being expanded to, to be both work and play in the same mm. in the same space. So the demands that we are getting from our corporate travelers is that they want their apartment not just to look like home, but it also needs to be conducive for them to work, and and we want to make sure that we provide the environment. So first, we want to make sure we are in the right geographies, and second, we want to make sure that we have the right product that that can appeal to these guys uh, who are tomorrow's corporate travelers, while at the same time serving today's uh, corporate travelers.
0: And I think that's a that 's a really important balance that that is one of the things that we 've even explored here on the podcast and in other episodes where we 've really looked at that that shift in customers and customer demands and desires and that 's really really important and but i but i, I what i 'm hearing you say erwin um, is that especially when we look at the f- these futures, these kind of futures of different markets and regulations, that it is just local. It is very local. Um, and that's the part that is really important, is to understand kind of what's going on locally and, and using using that, as you said, as a, as a bellwether.
1: And that's what um, members are, are looking at. Uh, I think we're seeing more member companies investing in properties than we have in the past and looking at um, building out uh, multi purpose um, communal spaces and purpose built buildings, and really trying to create this space that is um, both attractive to be someplace to live and also attractive to be someplace to work um, at the same time. Because, as you said, I think you you use the very technical term of smushed, and I think that is spot on. That I mean, the lines are really blurred between working and the rest of your life. And so, how can you, as you said, BDJ, how can you make that balance happen? Right. Well,
0: Erwin, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on the uh, podcast today. Um, you know, this is a, is a very big subject when you try to tackle something around the future of markets, regulation, and business. But I think your perspective, and especially your global perspective, uh, kind of over time, sort of watching markets change, watching mm-hmm. the needs and desires of, of clientele change was, uh, was really helpful, and, and I think really, really helpful for our audience. So th- thank you so much for joining us today.
3: You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Erin So, Marianne, as we
0: look at the future of markets, regulation, and business, who's the next interview you've lined up for us?
1: Well, we have John Wagner with us. John Wagner is a citizen of the world in every respect, having lived and worked in America, Britain, Amsterdam, Paris, and Prague, and he brings that global perspective to bear on all aspects of the psychist hospitality experience. So he founded the company and used his hotel marketing, operations, and development experience to create something really unique. He's opened brands in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, including a hotel management company in the Czech Republic. And he was Marriott's first sales and marketing VP for Residence Inn, and he was over their first 125 hotels. So he's bringing all of that to bear on our podcast today. That's great. Wow. Well, John, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you very much. I'm really not that old, but uh, it makes bio makes it sound like I am.
0: Well, I think your bio and certainly your background really makes you a, a perfect guest. Marianne is, always does a great job finding us these these great guests as we. As we look out at this kind of the future of markets and regulation and business, this kind of globalism and nationalism, certainly there's a lot of change. And we know for a lot of our listeners, they're really interested in this. You know, some are kind of worried. Some are kind of excited by it that they see um, opportunity. And so on Navigating Noise, what we're always trying to do is just that, help people kind of navigate the noise through all of what's going on. So let's just dive right in. So, John, are you feeling any pain or are you experiencing any gains from the current situation, from globalism versus nationalism, from regulation in business, what are you experiencing all around the globe? Well,
4: our business, the service department business in, in Europe, uh, closely akin to the hotel business, I think, is a major beneficiary for the way the economy and and globalization, as you call it, is is emerging as as a lifestyle. and And I think that's how I would characterize it. It's a lifestyle. The way. People live and work is dramatically different today than it was even a few short years ago. For example, there's so much, uh, so many people that work not for a set job, but rather in their own business or for their own consultancy company, and they travel and they move around the globe. Whereas a few years ago, it was unheard of. Today, people will take temporary jobs, temporary opportunities, and they'll move for a, a few months or a better part of a year. And then they'll move on to the next job, and it might be somewhere else around the globe. And the kind of business that we have, service departments, apartment hotels, all suite hotels, it's it's perfectly well-suited for that because we provide temporary living. And it, the, the, the demand for what we do and the... Where the people come from, where our customers come from, um, they seem very well suited for each other. Quite candidly, it's one of the reasons why we created this company here in in Europe, because we thought and we still believe that that globalization, the way people do business is changing. And we wanted to have a product that that, uh, uh, was attractive to those kind of folks.
0: So, John, as I'm hearing it, so when you are, especially with your operations in Europe, so for you you're still seeing globalism in full effect. You're still seeing, as you said, the rise coming. Are you, are you seeing any pushback as you're seeing sort of some countries or some different areas kind of start to retrench a little bit? We've heard people use the words sort of intra-country travel where they're, they're seeing gains, but their gains are coming from people staying sort of inside of the country and not actually kind of, kind of doing that spirit of globalism. Are, are you seeing that or is it, it, is it more that globalism is still on the rise for you?
4: I, I see the, uh, the, the people that want to stay home and the people that are uh, less likely to travel far distances, frankly, are more the leisure guests. The, 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 the staycations, the individual people, it, it's leisure stuff. The business experience that we have is exactly the opposite. As I said a minute ago, the number of foreigners, meaning somebody that doesn't live in the country where our home hotel is, the number of foreigners is a growing percentage. 30, 40, 50, in some cases, 60 or 70% of our clients in different hotels, of course, depending on the location, come from a country other than where they're staying at. We've got customers from, gee, literally all over the globe in our hotels, of course, We've got hotels in in, in Amsterdam and and in London and several spots in the UK and and building in Paris and Brussels and Germany. Those are destinations and those are economies that welcome and attract individuals from around the globe. And so the interchange of intelligence and, and skills back and forth, it's why we're building hotels there, why we're operating hotels. And those economies and those businesses, those industries, they want that skill base
0: yeah, and, and that's one of the things that as we've been as we've been talking to people on the podcast that's come up a lot that people are kind of making those decisions and they they really do enjoy that well with all that in, in mind with with as you're you're seeing this sort kind of gain this benefit of kind of globalism. Uh, one of the questions that Mary and I want to ask also is so. With that in mind, so how are you and how is your company? So how are you then prepping for that future? If you're seeing over the past few years, if you've been seeing this rise, as you look out to the future, what is your organization doing to prep for it?
4: it, it much of uh, your question, much of my answer to that question, has to do with the physical in the in the hotels themselves, the properties. Just as I said that uh, globalization means people move around more, their expectations for what they, where they stay when they get there is also changing pretty dramatically pretty quickly. Um, whereas uh, many of us t- in times past, and partly because of, of cultural expectations, when you're in your hotel, when you're in your strange city, you stay in your room. You're, you're on your own. You're you're an island there while you're there, because as I said, it's not culturally expected that you mix with other people. There wasn't really the environment. Many people don't want to go sit in a restaurant on their own. That those are those times are changing, I think, and even old people like me. When you're in town for a while, um, you, you want to have some human interaction. You want to talk to somebody. You can't do it in a in an old-fashioned, or you, you can. Some people still do, but most people are not comfortable going into an old-fashioned bar. Um, there's just too much uh, too much baggage that goes along with uh, with that, and 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 so what we try and create in the new properties that we're building, and you see it in lots of lifestyle hotels, is these. Almost elaborate coffee areas, coffee shops, uh, places where you can mix between you're eating, you're having a drink, you're having a cup of coffee, you're also working. And oh, by the way, you can chat to the stranger that's at the next table, table over because they, too, are from out of town and they're doing the same thing as you are having a cup of coffee or they're on their laptop. Um, and it's socially acceptable to start a conversation there. You're not in a in a threatening environment, what some people might consider to be a threatening environment, uh, a bar. And you're not sitting on your own um, in the corner of some restaurant. Um, and of course, you're able to get out of your room, so you're not that room service. You're in this area where you can work and mix and be comfortable with people. Frankly, every one of our hotels that we're building has got such a space that I just described. And it's not unique to service departments or all suite hotels. It's coming in regular hotels as well. But it's particularly important in the kind of hotels we do where people are living. They really demand and they notice if they don't have the ability to mix with other people. And whereas I said a few minutes ago that oftentimes these kind of customers come in groups 5, 10, 20, even more at a time, they've got their own built-in social network when they travel. They travel in a group, but an awful lot of people travel ones and twos, and they don't have that social network. And uh, I'm not going for the sympathy vote here, but I think most people can appreciate that if you're out of town for a week or two or three or four at a time, you're away from your family, you're away from your home, you're away from your own friends, uh, again, I'm not trying for the sympathy vote. It can get pretty lonely. It's a lonely existence, and so you need that interaction. You need to be able to talk. And you, you, some people will do it at the office or the factory or wherever they are, but for for many of us, it's it's where you're living. And in this case, where you're living is a hotel. So you want the environment where you can you can have a chat. You can share a cup of coffee. Right.
0: So. So, John, let me ask you this. So, are you, so I I think it's interesting that you put in that you've got people, like you said, traveling alone, you have Mm -hmm. people traveling in groups. And so, it sounds like, so what you're building and what your organization is doing is really facilitating areas, physical areas inside of the, the the Space. properties yeah mm-hmm. to be able to have them have social interactions whether it be social interactions with the group or or social interactions with maybe strangers but kind of getting out of their room and and doing that So Marianne are are you seeing that as well are you seeing other members kind of see, doing that that same approach
1: yes yes we are um, and so what I heard John say is that you're really building something that's allowing people to live elsewhere than their home the way they would live at home and though so creating this this space um and something else that you mentioned earlier John um members are sharing that nationalism is a thing of the past so it is if you're not thinking globally you're not remaining competitive you're not going to grow um your b- business isn't going to continue um evolving and so all of the things that you outlined are what a lot of people are seeing everywhere in the world today Oh yeah that's a good mm-hmm. yeah that's
0: that, uh, a was a follow up John I would put that to you. Do, do you agree with that? So this idea that nationalism from a business standpoint is really a thing of the past and that if you really aren't embracing globalism and this idea, as you said, of people traveling around to do business, that you're kind of a dinosaur. Would you agree with that?
4: I, I couldn't agree more. I think as, as I've traveled around the world, both on business and pleasure, and I've done it for a few years, the w- one thing that I really enjoyed, despite all the the politics and all the, the the global issues and wars and stress and anxiety and all that stuff so rarely do, do the average people the normal people in a country they usually just don't pay any attention to that that business and and commerce in general really transcends any of that national pride and whatever prejudice or bias you may have in what what shows up on the newspaper is politics when you talk to real people and real business people so rarely does anybody think about that at all
0: that's great that's great well well John Wagner, thank you so much for joining us on Navigating the Noise. Your, your perspective and your global perspective, I think, is, is really helpful mm-hmm. and, and being able to, to bring those in. And I think you've, you've given us a, a little bit more of a perspective um, and a little kind of a deeper dive into this area. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, John. Hello, everyone, and welcome to section three of the podcast. This is called Three Things to Do. This is where Marianne and I look back over the episode and consider what are three things that you could do? What are three pragmatic things that you could do today to start getting ready for tomorrow? And on this episode of the podcast, we looked at the future of markets, regulation, and business. No no small subject mm-hmm. by any means. Certainly a very important subject. It's a subject that we've had lots of people writing in about. I know, Marion, when you go to events, and certainly when I give speeches and give talks, people always want to know about this. And I, I, I don't think we could tackle it all in, right. a, in a single podcast, certainly. But I think this was a good start. And so we think we've come up with some, I think, some really good three things to do here. And it's really, uh, the first two are really more on the serious side and, and pretty... Um, pretty hard nose. So the first thing to, of your three things to do is to analyze. Analyze your market and understand what effects these shifts could happen. So when it comes to shifts in markets, shifts, shifts in regulation and in business, whether that be globalism or um, nationalism, you know, what could that happen? Again, one of the things I think we learned from the podcast really specifically is that you know, all, all markets are different. Globally markets look differently and actually depending upon what markets you're in it's going to be different so that's where I'm saying you know take a moment take a step back if this is really weighing on you and really do that analysis kind of think about what what might happen if these shifts begin to to move or change in your market and what that might what that might mean and then the second of your three things to do would be review and this is really the flip side of of the first thing of, of the analyze. The second thing would be review what affects these changes the changes you've just thought about in your analysis review what effects these might have on your customers i think this is something that uh, definitely paul brought up um, early on saying you understanding that this these changes And these shifts may not only just affect you and your business, but they'll affect your customer's business as well. This could be something around visas. This could be something around trade. So that you are prepared, if this does happen, that you know you might need to make a pivot and make a change. And so those are the first two. And I think the first two are are pretty serious and and something that i do believe from a business standpoint everybody really should do to be prepared for tomorrow but the the third one i know marianne you really like and i and i really liked this idea and it came up time and time again so the third thing to do is consider consider globalization as a lifestyle
1: i think uh, john wagner brought that phrase um uh, to these podcasts but i agree with that so And consider that as part of your business development plan. So as John mentioned, he also said, you know, 30 to 70% of guests are coming from another country. So at least that's what he's he's seeing in the UK. And I know um, our members throughout the world are also seeing this. So you need to think globally to stay competitive. And so you need to appeal to a a more global audience.
0: And I think the reality of the times that we're living in Mm -hmm. is they're complicated. They're not set and they're going to continue to shift and be uncertain for a while now. And that's just the reality of the of the present that we live in. And so as you're preparing for that future, I think, you know, considering globalism as being many people in the podcast considered globalism to be good for business. Mm -hmm. That that, yes, you you might be in small sort of intra-country travel, but really that there's always going to be this global nature and that people have seen it and they're continuing to see it. And I think, I think thinking of globalization as a lifestyle is also much more broadly when it comes just around business in general.
1: It is. But basically, people are people. So right. keep that factor in mind. Right, yeah. definitely.
0: And so those are your three things you can do. So you, number one, analyze. Mm-hmm. Number two, review. And number three, consider. Consider globalization as a lifestyle. So those are your three things. And that's the the close of our podcast on the future of markets, regulation, and business. So Marianne, you want to take us to the exit?
1: Thank you, everyone, for listening to Navigating the Noise podcast, brought to you by CHPA and ASAP. So please reach out to us and let us know what else you'd like to hear, what else you'd like to ask PDJ, or just to help us stump the futurist. You can email me at map at chpaonline.org, follow us on Twitter at chpaonline, or visit our website, www.chpaonline.org.
0: Thanks, everyone, for joining us here on Navigating the Noise, brought to you by CHPA and ASAP. We'll talk to you again soon.